Tom and I sat down and did the entire Coen Brothers filmography in one session. And when it was all said and done, it was over an hour. And we, we felt that was too long for one episode. So we decided to split it up into two. So this is part one of the Coen Brothers filmography. Well, Tom, we've talked about the Scream franchise and Broken Lizard so far in this little adventure. It naturally follows that we would deal with the Coens next. Yeah, you know, it's I, I they're all different. Fan, I, well, I guess I don't know how much overlap there is between fan bases. They are all things that have fan bases. Let's put it that way. Yeah, but we consider ourselves fan of all these things. That's true. The high, the low. We're, we are connoisseurs of talent wherever we find it. <laughs> See, he said in the first episode, I'm the only one with bad taste. I think you're seeing how things are shaking out for real. I said you were my mentor in bad taste. I think <laughs> something along those lines. He's already given me the hi hat. <laughs> well, and here we're talking. I, we've gone from movies uh, or at least series or groups of movies by a troupe that have a lot of ups and downs to now. Really, I think with the Coen brothers, you're, you're nitpicking greatness with a couple misfires. That's going to be interesting because we have to talk about that. So. We are power ranking the Coen Brothers movies. And for those of you that don't know, we take the IMDb scores, we take the Rotten Tomato scores, we take the Letterbox scores, we normalize them all together, and then uh, that spits out a power ranking. So we're not saying that any of these are good or bad, although I will say at least one of them is bad. And, and then we're just kind of seeing how they compare to each other. So it, it's interesting. I think it's a fair comparison. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I'm going to say they're great because I, I think you, if, if somebody were to tell me, these are the best filmmakers of all time. Uh, I, I would have trouble making that good of an argument against them. I do like them an awful lot. Maybe they are the best. It's one of the things the Coens can do is that they're highbrow, but they're also for the most part outside of, I think two, they're very accessible. Yes. Yes. I agree with that. And it's, it's hilarious to me now that they've broken up because you can see exactly who was bringing what to the table when uh, most recently, Joel makes a black and white uh, tragedy of Macbeth movie that looks very uh, German expressionistic and it's very artsy, very smart. And he's doing the, the interview rounds talking about, you know, how he's, he's drawing from the passion of Joan of Arc and whatever else. And then Ethan is, is just made a, a lesbian sex comedy about a botched crime. Um, and so I, I would guess that Ethan is the one who's sort of saying, Joel, this is getting boring. What if we throw some sex or crime in here? And Joel's, you know, got all these thoughts about life and society and so on and so forth. Not to say Ethan's dumb, but I think he grounded Joel in a way that yielded great results. Yeah. Well, they worked amazingly together um, for the most part. Let's start at number 18. This is the lowest ranked Coen brother movie on our power ranking. And it is uh, not even close. It is the lady killers. Yeah. I think everybody will either say the lady killers or intolerable cruelty among anyone who's watched a lot of these. Um, and the interesting thing is they happened back to back. Uh, they were a year apart and it was 2003, 2004. So lady killers was 2004 right before they rebounded with no country for old men. So it's like this little blip where people were sort of like, uh Oh, have they lost it? Uh, and then no, they hadn't, but lady killers, it's a, it's a remake that was originally developed for Barry Sonnenfeld, their, uh, their old cinematographer to direct. And I don't know how exactly they ended up with it, but they, they'll do writer for hire jobs. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this was. And then I guess just like Barry Sonnenfeld must've dropped out and the funding was there and they thought, Oh, this will be fun. And they've got this reverence for, you know, some screwball comedy, old, old tiny comedy that uh, I think just is not really their strong, uh, not really something that they are great with and also not something that really clicks with audiences today. 
So I don't know who thought Lady Killers would be a hit, but they did bring in Tom Hanks to try to help, and it didn't work. No, it did. It did. It did not work. Um, there's not much about Lady Killers alike, and you know what's interesting about it is um, the way we do it. It gives us a number. It actually gives us a number ranking of these or a number score of these movies. Lady Killers ranks so low as far as a Coen Brothers movie. If I, if I were to take a balance beam, you know, like an old scale used in, in chemistry class, and I put Lady Killers on one side. I'd have to put No Country for Old Men and then Fargo with it to balance them out. This is shockingly bad for them. Well, and it's 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 because it's them that yeah. it's this low. If anybody, if Barry Sonnenfeld made exactly the same movie, people would say like, I don't know, it wasn't great. I don't care though. But it's it's offensive to audiences that that the Coens would make something that does not move them and excite them the way that their others do. I, I mean, it's not absolutely horrible no. like jk simmons is occasionally funny the my must have waffles forthwith is kind of funny <laughs> i guess like it's a low bar to say some scenes are kind of funny but like it's shot well by roger deakins and it's a it's a thoroughly forgettable but not horrible movie no it's not offensively bad no i agree with that and it does have a bruce campbell cameo and uh my my biggest complaint about them is they're friends with sam raimi bruce campbell every once in a while pops up would it kill them to give Bruce Campbell a good meaty role? Because nobody else is. Number 17. Intolerable cruelty. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's I think it's basically interchangeable between the two for most. Uh, I, I don't know which one I'd say I like more or less exactly. It's a screwball romantic comedy. It's got uh, George Clooney, Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, kind of a funny energy or like i like the, the the pace of the movie seems like it should work it's in the like the, the shape of a successful movie it's just not that funny <laughs> i think i put this actually ahead of lady killers just because uh clooney and uh catherine zeta jones just sparkle in this movie they this is like golden age hollywood right there they looked like movie stars in this movie absolutely and, and i think even the supporting cast is good like jeffrey rush is He's oh, yeah. acting in a funny way. The first scene's kind of funny. Cedric the Entertainer's kind of funny. Uh, it's just, it doesn't really coalesce in any interesting ways. Like, I think it's not grounded enough to work as a, a, the kind of movie romantic comedy audiences would want. And it's not heightened in a funny enough way for just pure slapstick to really take over. And so you get the Coens, I don't know, they're, they're trying something that I think they've tried a few times. So like, really, this would be the, the attempt at something that Hudsucker Proxy was sort of going for as well. And Hudsucker Proxy was a huge flop. And so they go back to like, can we make a, a Frank Capra type movie? And this one's more grounded. It's got these big movie stars. It's like they wanted a hit after uh, they'd had a reasonable amount of success, but they wanted something big and broad uh, or their agents talked them into it or something. I don't know, but it, it's just not their style. No, it really isn't. And there, I mean, you're going to see as we go through the bottom of the, the, the bottom part of this list, there's definitely a reoccurring theme is that they set out to make a comedy. Yes. Yeah. Well, they, they're funny. You know, they're smart, funny guys. Even when they're making something serious, the, the humor almost right. always creeps in. Yeah. But the, the, their, their, their skill set seems to be letting that humor creep in, not sitting down to make a dedicated comedy. Outside of one or two exceptions, I agree completely. Okay. Well, let's see if you agree about this one. Number 16. Hail Caesar next up. You know, I, I like Hail Caesar. It doesn't surprise me to see it low. I, I think it's better than some of the other ones on here, but it's a, it's a movie that they made. Um, it's, you know, toward the end of their careers or more recently. So they, they, I have said it before, but I view inside Lou and Davis is kind of this, this big statement about making art. 
Hail Caesar is kind of a final epilogue, I feel like, to their big project and their really prolific run where it's sort of them reflecting on what movies mean to them and culture in general. And it's this, you know, loving throwback to a lot of different genres in doing so. And it's funny. There's one hilarious, perfect classic Coen Brothers scene where they're debating the nature of God. The rest of it is all funny and pleasant and like moves along well. I don't know that it's a movie that uh, is as memorable or you know, shocking is some of their best stuff. It, it, it's a good movie and it's a fun one. Outside of the rabbi saying God is a bachelor. <laughs> I, I can't remember anything else that really made me laugh. Well, there, there's several funny lines in that scene when they're talking about uh, the nature of God. So like God is both here. Jesus is both man and God. And then the, one of the denominations of Christians says yes and no. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like see, line after line in that scene is just hilarious. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish the movie was all in that register they got this, uh, like, what if what if um, the Red Scare was rooted in this real communist conspiracy among all the writers where they're kidnapping and brainwashing Hollywood stars? That's a great idea. It doesn't totally go anywhere because it seemed like they just wanted to acknowledge a lot of things that they thought were funny instead of make them more cohesive. So I think there was a better movie in there, but I, I, like, I like it. Yeah, I like it, too. I, I have no problem with it. I enjoyed it watching it. And, you know, if they're in a pinch, just bring in George Clooney to be a complete moron. And that's always safe for them. <laughs> Yeah, and, he, and he's great at it. <laughs> he claims he claims to be inspired by the Coens as as he's directing movies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because he he's great in the Cohen movies, uh, and he's great in a lot of movies. He is a horrible director. <laughs> like I, I, that guy cannot direct a movie. Uh, Saves life. He, he may have uh, paid attention to intolerable cruelty a little too much while making Leatherheads. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, seriously. But uh, yeah, Hail Caesar, I'm, I'm a thumbs up, but it doesn't surprise me that it's this low. Yeah, yeah. Hudsucker Proxy, next up. This is your boy. This is Sam Raimi right here, number 15. Yeah, well, so Sam Raimi clearly likes some of that screwball energy. Uh, he leans more slapstick. I, I go back and forth on Hudsucker Proxy. Some years I watch, I watch it probably every year. And uh, some years I really, really like it. Other years I'm a little more down on it. I think it's it's not interesting on a character level. It is interesting on a stylistic level, and some of the jokes are funny. It's a well-directed movie, um, but it's, a, again, a throwback that I don't think people were, like, pining for at all. So it's it's sort of like their preoccupations. And this was what they bet all the... the they put all their chips on this as their first big-budget movie. And it's just a it not a, a big commercial not an interest that the commercial audiences have at all. And I guess that's the same thing that they sort of do with intolerable cruelty, which is for some reason, when they think let's make a big hit, the thing that they think of is not a popular idea <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> it's, it, it is amazing that they have such good instincts, except in that aspect. It, it, it's remarkable. And maybe this is why they don't talk to Sam Raimi and Bruce, Bruce Campbell anymore. <laughs> yeah. Notably, they never wrote another movie with, uh, with Sam. Yeah. Um, I, I do, you know, we got a funny Bruce Campbell role, uh, Jennifer Jason Lee and Bruce Campbell together is probably my favorite stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree. It's, it's a fantastic looking movie. Was this still, was this still Sonnenfeld or had he bailed yet? This was Deacons. Um, okay. And, and Deacons, uh, it's interesting to see the difference. And I think they, we're very inspired by how Sonnenfeld shot those first three movies. And so you see, I think them pulling Deacons in the Sonnenfeld direction in the first few that they collaborated on. Whereas as you get closer to the you know, 2000 and beyond, they're very Deacons looking movies. Oh yeah. I agree with that. All right, let's move on. This is the last of the low scoring. Like I think we'll have to have a blog. We'll have to explain some of this because this is some abstract thought we're putting forth here. 
This is the last of the below average scoring movies, even though we're at only number 14. But this is Burn After Reading. Yeah, it's a hilarious movie. It's a it's a movie that was ahead of its time is what I would mostly attribute this to, which is I think so it came out in 2008. And that was a time when America briefly deluded itself into thinking that things were going to be coherent and normal and rational. And the Coens, because they're perceptive people, realized like, no, no, it's just it's a bunch of weird, horny idiots all running around doing nonsense and getting <laughs> in trouble. And that I think that feels very accurate now. But people didn't want it to feel right because we, you know, there, there was this mirage of of normalcy post Bush. And uh, the Coens, I think they're they're just too smart for us sometimes. But this movie, it's a crowd pleaser. It's funny. Uh, I think people are way too hard on it. When George Clooney unveils his invention in the basement, that's one of the loudest laughs I've ever heard a movie theater audience. Yeah, well, and Brad Pitt's smile right before he dies. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know, it, Brad Pitt's hilarious in it. Yeah. And I think that, so this one, it was right after no country for old man. And I wonder if it's judged by it being way more Cohen in nature and less Cormac McCarthy in nature. You know, I, I hate to harken back to broken lizard while we're talking about Cohen's, but you mentioned about super troopers being kind of apolitical just out to make you laugh. And uh, I think that was part of the reaction critics had. I think they wanted a political statement here. And all the Coens had to offer is that people in charge are just as dumb as everyone else in the world. There's nothing special. Which is, it is political in a, I think a fairly real, honest way, but it's not the way that critics wanted in 2008. Yeah, it could be. And we've talked about our love of In the Loop and Malcolm Tucker. I think, uh, I think of Malcolm Tucker in this. He has no political stance. He's just, he's just <laughs> out there for whatever he's got to do. Well, that, I think that's what so many people are, but the, we have this people impose partisanship on it. And it's like, <laughs> no, 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 the bad guys are like this. The good guys are not like this, as opposed to Ianucci and the Coens who are sort of like, what if everybody's like this though? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number 13. So we are in positive territory now. This is a positive, re- positively received movie. The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So I put this uh, kind of in the, as in the same category as when we talked about Quasi with Broken Lizard, which is to say my suspicion, this Netflix movie that's two and a half hours long, Ooh. that's a Western anthology that had basically no marketing. I would guess not as many people saw it. And the people who did see it are big Cohen fans who are probably more disposed to like it. I, I think it's a slog. I think it's their, their third misfire. This is the last one together, right? This is it. Yeah. Yeah. And Ethan had said that it was a really tough shoot and he got sort of burned out on movies making it. And so reading between the lines, it sounds to me like he was not in love with it either. It really feels like to go back to what I was talking about before inside Lewin Davis is this big artistic statement. Hail Caesar's kind of this last sort of wrap up homage to what they love. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that this one's a bunch of little short Western stories feels like the scraps at the bottom of the drawer. Full disclosure here, I have not seen Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And uh, when you messaged me saying, no, skip it. Yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to like it. And, and there, there are parts that work, but it's with the Coens again, they, they are so often so great that when they make something that doesn't work, it just it, it's it's off putting. Yeah. And um, none of the ideas seemed especially exciting or interesting. The way it's shot is all it's all competent. There's nothing wrong with it exactly. But I, I put it in the pile with the. Uh, Intolerable Cruelty and Lady Killers, which Ooh. almost everybody will disagree with. But I think it's like, yeah, I see what they're trying to do. It just doesn't work. Oh, and all right. So the reason I skipped it is because I wanted to rewatch this one instead, which is number 12. And I'm so glad I did. 
a serious man. Yeah, that's that. This, we're basically in the in the place now where any of the remaining ones outside of maybe Barton Fink uh, has a reasonable case at being number one for me. I think uh, a serious man is wonderful. It's hilarious. It's it's a way better white noise adaptation than Noah Baumbach's white noise <laughs> adaptation, and it's got it's wrapped up and kind of reimagined in their their baggage of being Minnesotan Jews. And uh, it has maybe my favorite villain of their entire filmography, Cy Abelman. <laughs> I yeah, Cy is he's such a piece of shit. I, I I love him for that. He's coming at him with such a smile and and love. Um, what's his name, Larry? And, and just yeah. he's mailing the he's mailing the college those the letters. Spoiler alerts, I guess I should say. If you haven't seen a movie that's been out for, you know, 20 years. Yeah, go see it because it's hilarious or go, go see it. Go to the theater and see it. No, watch it on Netflix or whatever. But no, it's a it's a thoughtful movie. It's a smart movie, but it's it's smart and layered and kind of intellectual, but also about there not being as much meaning as people want to impose on everything, which is more accessible than I think people would expect. Right. Uh, can we talk about that? I, I don't want to spend half the show talking about a serious man, but I feel like we need to because I think this is them actually saying something more than almost any other movie they've made is i think this is really them making a statement i want to talk about the 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 story at the beginning about the the little man and his wife and what happens there because i've seen a lot of interpretations of it online and like i've seen some people float the idea that larry gopnik is a descendant of the people in the beginning but i I think that's missing the point tell me what you think here i think the opening is a primer for the audience i think this is like magnolia telling the audience how what's about to happen and uh, how we interpret the story of, this, of his, this man, his wife, and what the wife does is going to color how we feel about that story. And our own perception is going to color how we feel at the end of A Serious Man. Yeah, I think you're right on the money. Um, it's, it's a tonal piece and it's ambiguous enough, but I think you have enough data to... Maybe this is just me putting my biases on it, but I think we have <laughs> enough data to say it's not the big fancy religious version of this story. Probably it's just people who have beliefs and make bad decisions, which is what the rest of the movie is. Yeah. And they are just freaking geniuses at a, a voice on the phone, having so much menace. It's just Columbia house records calling you, but I'm thinking of Fargo too, with the lo- the bank, the guy in the bank loans. It's just, it's the same guy. Oh, it's the same guy. I didn't know that. No, yeah. that's amazing. They brought him back to, to be yeah, guy on phone causing anxiety for protagonists. <laughs> it's, it's classic. I love it. So I said there were two challenging Coen Brothers movie. I, I think this is definitely one of them. I think it is a slight challenge. Yeah, it, I think it it presents as a challenge more than it actually is, though. Like to, to me, it's got these answers for you, but we don't want that to be the answer, which is maybe there's not uh, a, an explanation that's all cosmological or religious or theological. Uh, maybe it is just as dumb as like the Goy's teeth is a weird story. There's weird stuff that happens <laughs> and uh, who knows? I don't know. Be a good person. That's right. Yeah. Be a good person. That's right. Get high with your neighbor. That's, a, that's, a, that's what you do. All right. Uh, next up, I think of the, t- of the, this is the second one. I think this is a, this is the most challenging movie on the Coen brothers list. And it is number 11, the man who wasn't there. I think I would say it's not as challenging as Barton Fink to some extent, but mm. I, I love the man who wasn't there. I think it's a, it's a great movie. It's got this great style, great tone. Um, it's a noir, but it's much more, it's, it's noir funneled through French existentialism, but also it's very funny. Um, 
James Gandolfini in the Coens. Uh, it's a crime that, you know, everybody didn't get a chance to work with that guy, yeah. but that he did not become a regular Coens character or a cast member. And that we don't get, you know, we don't have five more performances of them working with him is, is horrible because he's, he's great in this movie. We don't have enough characters in movies that want something and have no idea what it is and no ability to express it. Yeah. Well, now I get why, because that's, that kind of goes against the rules of narrative, which is they need a clear goal. Right. And well, and then, so like they kind of like a serious man, they map that onto something that's more broadly existential, this kind of search for meaning, this imposition of meaning, it all should mean something. Right. But what if it feels like it doesn't? And so I think for them to be in that sort of sort of thoughtful register, but to funnel that into this very cynical, funny perspective that they have is such a good combination. And it feels very satisfying in a way that almost everybody else trying to make that combination work can't, including Noah Hawley, for example, on the Chicago. I, I was going to ask you about that. You know, he busted out like real UFOs and flying saucers in one of the seasons of Fargo. Yeah. I mean, I'm aware of that. I gave up on season one though. <laughs> so Noah Hawley doesn't quite get it either. I think inside the man that wasn't there, there might be the most Coen brothers quote of all time. I'm going to throw this at you. Uh, you know, Billy Bob, uh, the barber, what's his name? Ed is narrating and he uh, is talking about his lawyer and he told the, he says, he told them not to look at the facts, but at the meaning of the facts. And then he said, the facts had no meaning. Yeah, that's no, I mean, they do that repeatedly. Yeah. And then what do you do in that situation is the kind of the existential crisis. I think Fargo is kind of the same thing. Uh, we would like to impose meaning on it. You can maybe make some. And I think it's one of the things that's so smart about them. And it's why they don't feel didactic and they don't feel like they're lecturing you because the lecture is, is a big sort of, it's not even a question mark. It's sort of saying there's nothing you're not getting. There's maybe nothing to get. <laughs> right. That's why I love them. I love them for this. Like I said, th these guys are dealing with, with some, some interesting concepts, but they're not boring. They're very accessible. I mean, I think the man that wasn't there is probably a challenge, a tough watch, not tough, especially now for the kids. Black and white is really the thing that most people would say, ah, yeah, I don't know about that. Yeah. And to go back to a recurring uh, critique I've had of them, um, the, when Ed gets in the car crash and he has that dream and there's the guy selling like uh, some kind of driveway or like Pete or whatever. Um, Bruce Campbell auditioned for that role and did not get it. He complains about it in one of his memoirs. And I thought... It might have been distracting if it was Bruce Campbell, but can they just cast Bruce Campbell? What, what's the problem? You need to get on the horn, get him back, get him back together, make a vehicle for Bruce Campbell. <laughs> yeah. Well, that doesn't need to be a vehicle. He doesn't need to be the star. I just want a fun Bruce Campbell performance every few years. Number 10. Oh, brother, where art thou? I, I like this one. It's not a, it's probably not one that I go back to often. I think it's, it's thoroughly fun. Uh, it has a, a good energy to it. You really have George Clooney hamming it up in a way that works really well, uh, opposite John Turturro and Tim Blake Nelson. Uh, it's, I think that it's funny to me that the Coens will still claim that they have never read the Odyssey, uh, <laughs> despite having made this movie. I don't, I don't know what exactly to do with that. Cause they're, they're playing with the Odyssey and Preston Sturges. And this is probably what gave them the 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 boldness to say oh yeah we can make intolerable cruelty a hit our preston sturges movie just was this huge hit <laughs> right right i can totally see that what, what do you think they were sitting them sitting around one day and just said to themselves let's it, let's even though we've never read it let's interpret homer's odyssey <laughs> i mean I, culturally we all sort of know the gist of the story right the guy's trying to get back to his wife mm -hmm. and there's a cyclops and some sirens and that is the gist of what's in there they, i think they said tim blake nelson was the only person on set who'd ever read the odyssey uh, 
And I, I don't know that I believe them. And I, this is something that when Ethan would do interviews with Joel, it was almost like Joel was happy to let Ethan say something funny. So then neither of them had to actually explain their intentions. And I wonder if that's what this came out of. Clooney, just in, from, from the jump in the boxcar saying, are any boys smithy or otherwise versed in the metallurgical arts? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a it's a fun movie. John Goodman's very funny as the as the Cyclops, and yeah, it, it's it's just a, an easy watch. I'm glad that it became kind of this uh, hit, and the, you know the soundtrack was extremely popular, and so I'm glad they were able to channel uh, what they do into something that felt more mainstream for mm-hmm. them because it probably opened up some doors for what they would go on to make later. Oh wow, and it's one of the more mainstream um, hits. Uh, if we remove the critical score and just look at what audiences thought, this movie gets a big bump up. Yeah. The fact that a movie with that title was a hit at all is impressive. All right. We are moving on to number nine. This is uh, Racing Arizona. I'm, I'm shocked that this one is as low as because I would have guessed that this was top for a lot of the diehard mm-hmm. Cohen's fans. It's, it's an absolutely hilarious movie. Absolutely classic. So well shot. The performances are amazing. Everybody's great in it. They're firing in all cylinders. Everybody except... Uh, Roger Ebert seemed to like it. Uh, and I don't know because it's too funny. The guy did not like comedies very much, but I, I think this one is, a, it's a 10 out of 10 for me. It, some days it might be my favorite. I don't want to diminish blood simple at all here, but this is the first honest to God Coen brothers movie. Yeah, that's fair. That This is where it has blood simple established them as guys who probably could have made a lot of quasi horror, almost Hitchcockian thrillers. And they, they really said, no, we're going to go in just our, our own direction and embraced it. And it, I love them for yeah, it. Yeah, they were just going to let De Palma just take, take that, that, that territory. Yeah. Well, I mean, who would have guessed? Watching Blood Simple. Blood Simple's funny. It's funny in that dark kind of muted way. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, yeah, Raising Arizona, it's just, it, it is slapstick and it's crime. It's botched crime. It's, you know, that clearly is the big motif of their whole careers is the, the drama from a crime gone wrong. Right. But to do it in a way that can be really emotional. And uh, emotionally naked at times, and also as weird as that movie is, and as goofy as it is, and then you got even this like Mad Max element to throw all that together and make it work is one of the most impressive things that they've ever done. Yeah, it's a classic. I love this movie. I love everything about this movie. I love the soundtrack to this movie. Yeah, yeah it's amazing. The yodeling. I mean, yeah, the, the fact that they would even say our next movie will mostly have yodeling on the soundtrack. I mean, most people would say like, well, don't do that. <laughs> that that's not going to work. Yeah, right. It does. It, it, and it's emotional. Even it's moving. It's a very moving ending somehow. Yeah. And another great performance from uh, John Goodman. He's just so menacing in this one. And, and another another moment. This might have one of my favorite lines in any of the Coen Brothers movie <laughs> when he's in the gas station and he says, hey, these balloons make funny shapes. Oh, well, not especially unless round is funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, you know, I, I, are you surprised to see it as low as it is? I am. I am. I would put it higher than a lot of the movies we're about to talk about. But again, this, like you said, this is, uh, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, we're dealing with minor degrees here now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, Barton Fink is the only one that's up as high as it is that I'm a little surprised at because I think that one is abstract enough and intellectual seeming enough that I would have guessed it was, it would be more off-putting, but apparently, apparently not. Apparently it works pretty well. Yeah. Well, let's move on. And number eight. All right, you mother scratchers. That concludes part one of the Coen brothers power ranking. Part two will be here in two weeks. 